0: Hello, welcome to Small Findings. I'm Jim Kang, an artist and software engineer. Each episode, I bring you information that I feel I've understood well enough to at least explain to you. Unfortunately, I've been away for an entire month. I normally endeavor to bring you an episode each week. A few things have stopped me from doing that. First, I've tried to come up with a better recording setup, so that I can deliver more consistent recording quality. I did get as far as setting something up that is going to be more consistent. My setup now uses an old mic, and more importantly, a microphone stand. However, I did not get as far as making the quality significantly better. There's some noise in the recording, and I wasn't able to track down exactly where it came from. The bigger factor, however, is that times have been overwhelming recently. Recent events, like the murder of George Floyd by the police, have been grim, so a lot of my notes are also grim, complex, and incomplete. I have to respect this kind of subject matter, and thus, it's more difficult to properly present it. I've often struggled to write podcast segments uh, and then have trashed them. I did finally end up with some findings for you, however. They are Polio, white people closing ranks around atrocities then and now, and then finally a bit about uh, recent happenings with the Cambridge police. Okay, on to the findings. The virus that causes polio is called, sensibly enough, poliovirus. All the viruses seem to use this naming scheme. There's Ebola virus, coronavirus, and alpha influenza virus. The full name of the disease is poliomyelitis. It's famous for causing paralysis in children, which it does by damaging motor neurons, which then cause muscles to atrophy from lack of stimulation. FDR was diagnosed with poliomyelitis, but it is now widely believed that his doctors misdiagnosed him because they did not know about Goulain-Barré syndrome, which doctors today think is a better match for his symptoms. Poliomyelitis happens in 0.1 to 0.5% of poliovirus infections. In 24%, um, minor illness occurs. In 72% of uh, poliovirus infections, there are absolutely no symptoms. Polio may have been around since ancient Egypt. There are ancient Egyptian sculptures of people with withered legs. Wikipedia notes that it was first recognized as a distinct condition in 1789. The epidemics of polio, however, did not start until the first half of the 20th century. Before that, there was this bootstrapping effect that kept most people safe. The key was this constant exposure to the poliovirus. The way it worked was this. At some point in history, a woman got the poliovirus but survived it. She then had polio antibodies, which would stop the poliovirus from causing her harm. Then she had a baby. During pregnancy, she transmitted her antibodies to the baby, which would stay with it for the first few months of its life. The baby was then exposed to the poliovirus, but the maternal antibodies within it prevented adverse effects of the poliovirus from harming the baby. The baby used this time to develop her own antibodies, and then that baby grew up and had its own baby. And the cycle would continue. And the cycle did continue for centuries. You may be wondering why the antibodies from the mother were still good by the time she gave birth if she developed them as a baby herself. That's a long time. And the coronavirus, after all, has developed a few different strains over the course of just a few months. The poliovirus is an RNA virus, like the coronavirus. The way the RNA viruses replicate is by creating negative copies of their RNA, and then using those negative copies as templates for the actual replicants. Mistakes can be made when creating these sets of copies, but the less stuff you have to copy, the fewer mistakes you'll make. It's just like, you know, they say in programming, there's no bugs in the code you don't write. Coronaviruses are the largest RNA viruses, whereas poliovirus is widely regarded as the simplest significant virus. I know that from Wikipedia, and that, that particular statement had a citation in it, so it's probably good. Um, despite uh, the subjective terms like what's the simplest, We do know that uh, the poliovirus is 7,500 nucleotides long, or 7.5 kilobases. For comparison, the current current pandemic coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, or SARS-CoV-2, is 26 to 32 kilobases long. So there are fewer mistakes in replication otherwise known as mutations. And that's probably why antibodies are good for a generation. The polio-antibody cycle was broken in the 20th century by clean water supplies and good drainage systems. You see, polio virus is usually spread through fecal matter entering the mouth. That's right, poo in the mouth usually by way of water or food. Once stuff started getting washed properly, less fecal bacteria got into babies' mouths, and thus many babies never got exposed to the poliovirus while they still had their mother's antibodies, and these babies never developed their own poliovirus antibodies. These babies grew into children that were then susceptible to the poliovirus. This is a weird case in which better sanitation, which prevented all sorts of other diseases, was worse for this one special case. The U.S. had its worst polio epidemic in 1952. There were 58,000 cases and 3,145 deaths. By comparison, in the first half of 2020, the U.S. has had at least 100,000 deaths from the coronavirus, That polio epidemic seems tiny by comparison to uh, this massive uh, pandemic, which a lot of people are taking very casually right now. However, the polio epidemic did leave 21,269 people alive with some form of paralysis. My speculation is that it made everyone notice it. Since there were such well-publicized and successful efforts to fight it, I always imagined that when this epidemic happened, everyone did everything they could to stop it. However, Patrick Cockburn wrote an account in the London Review of Books uh, about his experience as a survivor of poliomyelitis in Ireland, and it calls out a lot of similarities between the polio response and the coronavirus response. For one thing, in 1952, they built a precursor to the ICU in Copenhagen. Much like the coronavirus, polio could eventually stop your lungs from working well, or at all. So they built ventilators, which were then called iron lungs, to keep patients breathing. In Ireland, people were confounded by seemingly isolated children getting infected. Later, they learned that, much like the coronavirus, it was being transmitted asymptomatically by traveling adults. Again, 70% of those infected by the poliovirus show no symptoms. Also similarly, uh, in at least in Australia and probably a few other places, they had hand-washing campaigns, and those actually helped to contain it. Also back then, rich people were opposed to taking measures to contain polio, because it would affect their bottom line. It was better for them if people just pretended that it didn't exist. In Cork, Ireland, the chief medical officer in the 50s opposed the closing of schools and sports. The city fathers, who were powerful businessmen, had the city's main paper, the Cork Examiner, play down polio. Business owners threatened to withdraw advertising from the paper unless it stopped reporting on the epidemic. Today, these same people, were they in the U.S., would likely have called for the reopening of retail, which happened a few weeks ago, and which is likely the cause of the spike in infections that we're seeing right now. I can't decide if this consistency in behavior is comforting or not. Predictability is usually comforting, but if there's nothing we could do about what we predict, it's not very comforting. Here are some unfortunately grave findings about how white people defended racist atrocities 60 years ago and how they do it today. In 1955, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy, was accused of sexually harassing a white woman. He was then mutilated and murdered by two grown white men. The murderers were judged not guilty. After the trial was over, they knew that they could stay out of jail and they had protection against double jeopardy from the Constitution. So, the murderers then admitted openly to a magazine that they had committed the murder. Later, the woman who had testified that Emmett Till had sexually harassed her uh, admitted that her testimony was false. She had made up at least part of the story. One of the murderers gave a a thoroughly disgusting statement to the magazine, stating that he committed the murder... To keep black people in their place this much i had known about however until recently i did not know about the local government and media response to this and these are details that are not hard to find Uh, they're in wikipedia with citations initially white media in mississippi decried the murder as did the governor and the deputy sheriff Governor Hugh L. White asserted that local authorities should pursue a vigorous prosecution. Once national attention arrived, however, white media in Mississippi changed its tune. They falsely reported riots in the funeral home in which Emmett Till's body was received. Emmett Till was from Chicago, and that is where the funeral home is. They printed rumors of a planned invasion By blacks and northern whites. Today, white supremacists on social media whip up fears of black protesters entering white neighborhoods to disastrous effect in places like Bethel, Ohio. Back in 1955, the sheriff had positively identified Emmett Till's body so that investigations could go forward. After national criticism of Mississippi, however, he reverted his positive identification, and he claimed that the body had been planted by the NAACP. Here in 2020, in Satilla Shores, Georgia, on February 23rd, two white men in a pickup truck confronted and shot a black man, Ahmad Arbery. Ahmad Arbery was jogging. A third white man who recorded the killing was and was involved in hunting Arbery stated that he heard the shooter call Arbery a racial epithet after shooting him. Satilla Shores is a small town that is mostly white people, and Ahmaud Arbery is from a neighboring town. One of the white men was informally deputized by the police. Officer Robert Rash, an actual police officer, texted the owner of a construction site to call on Greg McMichael the older of the two men with guns that uh, shot Mod Arbery, and he told him to call on him if he spotted somebody on his site. Greg McMichael is a former police officer. No arrests were made for two months. This is far slower than Mississippi's reaction to the murder of Emmett Till 60 years ago. Till's murderers were at least arrested for kidnapping, the day after they committed their murder. Of course, the complicating factor in Arbery's murder is that one of the murderers was a former police officer, as we've said. If a former police officer had murdered Till in 1955, there might not have even been a trial or any attention from the white media. White people in many communities today understand them as enforcers of a social order that favors white people. In 1955, this view of the police was more universal. Today, police officers uh, can kill black children like Tamir Rice without uh, seeing any sort of uh, criminal consequences. So I think that in 1955 in Mississippi, it's quite possible that a former police officer killing a black child would just go unnoticed. Here in 2020, when reporters came to Satilla Shores to ask about the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, residents reacted with hostility and denial. They were much like the Mississippians of 1955 after uh, Mississippi received national criticism. Here's an excerpt from The Daily episode about the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, which is worth listening to in full. I pulled up and parked my car near the McMichaels' home. This is the home of the two men who uh, chased Ahmad. And almost as soon as I parked, a woman came out and she started asking me what I was doing there. And I told her, she told me, she had called the police on me and she told me she was armed. Wow. You know, uh, I think there was just a lot of tension in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. and people were suspicious of my presence there. One very angry woman drove up to me as I was just walking the street and asked me repeatedly what I was doing there in a pretty hostile way. I came across another couple, and they had already made up their mind that Ahmad Arbery deserved what he had gotten. However, the rest of the state of Georgia, including the voter-suppressing governor and the state's attorney general condemned the killing, and called for an investigation. In Satilla Shores, which again is a small town with a population of 421, there is at least one house with a yard sign that read, We run with Maud in support of Arbery's family. So, there is progress in terms of white people closing ranks around an atrocity in order to maintain a social order that favors them. Just a disappointing amount of it. Here are some local findings about the police in my town, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Back in May of 2020, the Cambridge Police Department got in trouble for tweeting in reference to uh, U.S. Representative Joe Kennedy III. Um... And also, obliquely, uh, about Senator Ed Markey. They, they tweeted, quote, Another liberal fucking jerk who just happens to be better than the clown he's running against. Sad for us. The uh, individual behind that uh, tweet from the official Cambridge Police Department Twitter account was Police Superintendent Jack Albert. It's unclear what disciplinary action was taken. Here's what they said, uh, what the police department said. Superintendent Albert is subject to disciplinary action per department policy and procedures. Pursuant to Massachusetts general laws, the department would be restricted from disclosing any specific disciplinary action involving such personnel matters. Rest assured, the Cambridge Police Department remains committed to providing the very highest level service to our community and will work tirelessly to restore any trust that may have been broken as a result of this unfortunate incident. More than a month later, at the very least, Superintendent Jack Albert is still employed and still police superintendent. About a week later, on May 11th, two members of the Cambridge City Council asked what disciplinary measure was taken against Albert. In response, city solicitor Nancy Gloa told them that they cannot be told. She argued that the council does not have the right to ask about disciplinary actions about employees that are under the city manager's jurisdiction. So the police department is under the city manager uh, in Cambridge, and the city manager is appointed by the city council. Uh, But often the city manager gets reappointed and ends up spending much more time in office than the average city councillor so what what happens is uh, Cambridge has what's called a weak mayor system um, the the mayor is just maybe you could consider the mayor she's the first among the city councillors um, but a side effect of this is that the city manager which is an appointed position becomes much more powerful. So uh, in response to this, Counselor uh, Denise Simmons suggested that the inquiry about this uh, disciplinary action be withdrawn. And then when the council fell back to just condemning Albert's statement, Denise Simmons and Counselor Tim Toomey tried to remove Albert's name from the censure. So when it comes to police discipline in Cambridge, You Not only can the public not even know what happened, unless it's like a criminal investigation, uh, city councilors cannot know what happened. After the public execution of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer, and brutal attacks by the police on protesters that were protesting that killing, on June 14th, Cambridge discussed defunding the police like many other cities in the United States. Counselor Denise Simmons and Police Commissioner Bard, who are both black, became extremely angry about a motion to redirect $4.1 million in funding away from the police. Bard, the police commissioner, said, This city has come to rely on the department to do so much more than patrolling and responding to calls for service. And then he said you need to look no further than the multiple roles that the members of this police department took for the city during the throes of the COVID-19 emergency. However, police filling multiple roles, many of which do not require violence, is actually a primary motivation for defunding the police and for funding other agencies that are qualified to help in those other situations. In other words, do we need a dude with a gun and a bad attitude to make sure that people are wearing masks? Bard also said that the people calling for defunding were mostly all white. We'll talk about this a bit later. When questioned about the police department's military equipment, Bard said they had no military equipment. At the least, it is known that they have a bearcat. The Bearcat is a Ford F-550 retrofitted by a company called Lenco into an 18,000-pound 10-person armored vehicle. This is a vehicle that they brought to the Black Lives Matter protest. At the next council meeting on June 22, Councillor Quinton Zondervan requested a listing of the police department's equipment. This is a pretty simple request, but... Denise Simmons invoked her charter right to end discussion on the topic so that they would have to all talk, stop talking about seeing the listing. She said, We cannot look at only one department of the city without examining the entire municipal body. We would get an incomplete picture, a distorted assessment, and it would be a pointless endeavor. Indeed, what if... The Department of Public Health has a grenade launcher. Obviously, it makes sense to check them out first in order to check out the simple claim that Commissioner Bard made. The charter right thing is very weird, but uh, everyone else seemed to accept that is a legitimate thing. I actually cannot find the right to just stop everyone from talking about a topic in the city charter that they've posted to the Cambridge website. but. I I will try to look for more stuff and uh, talk about it in a future episode. The following week, on June 20, the Saturday after Juneteenth, 2,000 people marched to defund the police. For Cambridge, that's a very large march. It's about 2% of the population of the city. Contrary to what Bard was saying about calls to defund the police coming from just white people, There was a strong showing by black people and people of color. The organizer was black, and most, possibly all of the speakers, were black. In the end, the city council made a compromise to redirect $2.5 million away from the police budget. The police still get $62 million for 2021. Thanks for listening. Have any findings you want to share? Have any comments you want to make? If so, email smallfindings at fastmail.com. That's F-A-S-T-M-A-I-L dot com. I'll try to be back on Monday, the 6th of July. See you then.